Cunningham, what is your favourite game? My favourite game is The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. first got me into games was a combination of my mother and my father uh, who were both kind of independently into games when I was much younger uh, my mom when I was like five or six my mom got a Nintendo 64 and uh, that was primarily used to play Mario 64 which was her her big love and then she also played Ocarina of Time when I was very very young and that has left a deep seared impression of magic and wonder in my brain and uh, always will um and uh then my father used to my dad used to like go away a lot for work and travel a lot for work so he would bring me back these like really old macintosh um edutainment games essentially and like kids games Mm. you know stuff like uh barbie as rapunzel and like living books and you know dinosaur adventure and i used to play a lot around with with kid picks and stuff as well Mm. so there was like you know that kind of expression and you know console gaming computer gaming kind of combination of things when I was sort of uh, much younger Uh, and a lot of that stuff also kind of I suppose was the first step that got me into horror as well because I'm quite quite big into horror too Mm. and so there's a lot of things I mean you know yourself there's a lot of stuff in uh, Ocarina of Time that's quite quite terrifying (laughs) to young kids to see as well and uh, but also like exciting it's like something you can totally see when you're a kid but it's it leaves an impression of like fear (laughs) on you um, and then similarly, I used to, when I was very young, played those kind of like haunted house kids games. And that kind of left an impression where I was like, clearly made for you, clearly very exciting, but also quite terrifying when you're when you're very, very young. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, we kind of like always been kind of a gaming family. You know, I always have memories of like my mom and dad playing like platformers and Spyro and Crash Bandicoot and Abe's Odyssey and um I used to actually do this funny thing they would they said when I was very young when I was like again like when I was five or six uh or seven or eight I would be like oh you just got to go right and up and left and pick up the thing and then go right and down and back and they go how the hell do you know this you're like a small you're like an infant um, <laughs> I think it might have been a little bit of just kind of reading the in, in, intent or something but it was one of those they, they said it was one of the first kind of um things that left an impression that I was you know particularly into games or had a particularly a capacity for them I suppose or something when I was younger Mm. I think the through line we'll get on the Zelda momentarily but I think the through line sort of starts with your ma basically being in the ocarina I think that's sort of that through line that's sort of where everything kicked off oh yeah for sure for sure (laughs) and then when I was a bit older I did play it myself but I definitely remember watching her play it and the music is like embedded in my you know childhood formative core memories you know that stuff of like opening a chest and getting an item and traversing and the beautiful music I mean it's it's amazing so uh it'll definitely 
it's it's one of my honorable mentions. Bit of a spoiler for later in the episode. Oh no. <laughs> um, so yeah, um I find it fascinating as well as you sort of reference Ocarina as a sort of horror horror game. I'm again we'll touch upon Zelda in a minute, but like um I find that very fascinating because it's not very a traditionally horror game that you play, especially at a young age, and yet you sort of find that sort of well, well, not at all. I mean, it's it's not at all a horror game. Like no one, no one no, on earth, I think, described as a horror game. No, but as a no. child, I suppose it was maybe my, maybe I should describe it as it was my first exposure to like ho- horror-based concepts, things like yes. you know yes. spiders dangling above you and like yes. reanimated dead, and you know these kind of like and then the imminent danger, the constant danger, like game over screens. You see, like a lot of you know people nowadays who are like you know our age, like some of their first memories of like you know true horror is like the first time any character dies in any game, mm. including like sm- ch- games made for very small children. It's like there's something really terrifying about that the first time happens when you realize there's consequences for your actions. Um, you know that's that's really interesting and well, first thing that scares years. the first thing that scares people is the literal concept of death. Yeah, <laughs> that's very on brand for me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the the reason that I say that is because. Um, the first sort of game that I played when when I was really young that sort of really scared me was a non-horror game. But it also had horror-ish, no, no, I wouldn't even say horror-ish elements, but like the way it went about it was really fucking freaky and creepy. And it was Metal Gear Solid 2. And the end of that game with the Colonel. And I just remember, I've said this story before, but I've not said it in quite a while on the show. Um, so I'm just going to reference it for anyone who's sort of starting, uh, sort of tuning in for the first time. Um, so I'm going through Arsenal gear, naked riding, naked as the day was born. And then the Colonel just sort of keeps pestering you in the codec. And he, he pops up at one point. I think it's after the I need scissors 61 call. And he gives this sort of spiel on destroying the final weapon, Metal Gear. And it's not even what he says or how he says it, although that in itself is very creepy. But it's the image that's sort of projected through the codec of the sort of skull faced colonel um, yeah. in the game. And, and I see that as uh, an 11 year old, basically, 11, 12 year old. I was like, ah! And I just basically <laughs> run out of my bedroom and go, Molly! Molly! I definitely, absolutely had experiences like that as a kid as well. And you're told by your parents, you know, don't watch this movie, don't play this game, or step out for this scene. You won't be able to handle it. And you and your child brain go, of course I can handle it. And then two seconds later, Mom, Dad, help! <laughs> It's not even that, like, my parents were sort of very lax in terms of sort of supervision or playing games that probably shouldn't be playing at a certain age, except for Vice City. My mother was, I would say rather weirdly, but also rather appropriately, very strict against Vice City, at least initially, so it sort of tracks for that one, but like, otherwise... <laughs> that one, she's, she's uh, vindicated with that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, but I remember just sort of running out, out of my bedroom going, Oh my, I need help at uh, getting past this 
creepy curl person. <laughs> and she had no clue how to play the games at all. So the fact that I was trying to get her to play Metal Gear Solid 2 without a <laughs> lick of what is going on. And the fact that already, as much as I love Metal Gear Solid 2, as she was trying to sort of get me past what is otherwise a very convoluted aspect of the game at that point <laughs> in its story. And it's just like, 20 years later, I can sort of look back on it and be like, dear sweet Jesus, I'm sorry I put you through that now. <laughs> then again, she is also dead. So I can't exactly apologize to her. <laughs> That's sort of dark humor, and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm totally, un totally uh, understanding a dark humor. You know, I mean, that's like a, a lot of like what we we're talking about earlier with games as well. A lot of that is like just like sort of methods of um, sort of uh, dealing with and expressing more difficult kind of themes that like we have to deal with every day in life anyway, like events and aspects of like, I mean, we like Ocarina of Time. No, one, it's not a, you know, a new thing to say that it's sort of a expression of the loss of childhood uh, for a lot of people. And uh mm. That's a that's an incredibly valuable aspect of games, I think. Hmm. Um. So moving away, sort of from that aspect, um, talk about the sort of platforming as the platformer sort of aspect of the games you were playing at the time, like Spyro, like Crash, like uh, Oddworld. Like, talk to me a little bit about how you found those sort of games initially. Well, I was very young. I was just thinking about this when you were talking about. I was very young when I watched my friends play A's Odyssey, and that was like in its own sense uh you know traumatizing to a young child to see as well but uh, i loved it i loved the sort of um slowly unraveling you know this kind of d difficult puzzle but that was intentionally bespoke made to be satisfying i mean that's mm. what a lot of these platforming games are you know is this kind of false obstacles you know built by humans to make other humans happy and that's that's incredibly satisfying there's nothing quite like figuring out a you know a difficult puzzle designed in a game it's well designed you know and i think abe's odyssey is an excellent example of that um you know my and like i said my my parents just loved mario 64 particularly my mom um said she went into like almost like a a low-grade state of depression when she'd finished it because <laughs> she was so so into it and she's actually just recently like replayed like all of the what was the 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 bundle that released recently with like it was mario, mario galaxy mario, mario sunshine mario all stars 3d collection i think yeah. that's the one yeah and she's recently like finished that um you know and she's like she loves it so much so uh yeah a big part of that was i i i was like taking the controller every now and again to play but i was kind of an anxious kid so i would hand it back really quickly because i was very young like six or seven i go like no no i can't do this it's too, it's too scary um but i would the whole time i'd be i was, I was a great backseat driver <laughs> you know it's like no no not like that this but faster it's like do you want to do it no <laughs> oh god do you love to see it do you love to see it <laughs> So basically, um, my um, dad was uh, is in the film industry. So I um, himself, he's an actor. So I would kind of like, to a, a small extent, to a, a healthy extent, like sort of group a little bit around film sets and things. Mm. And I've loved movies. I've loved films since I was really young. Um, not surprising. I mean, I think most of us do. And, mm. uh, you know, when I, as I was growing older, I, I knew I always wanted to, um, you know, make something, express myself in some kind of media platform. And, you know, I'd been around film. I'd done my own like small projects at home, sort of embarrassing kid stuff, but like, I loved it. I was so passionate about it. And I went to school to study film 
and then I, I was, while I was in school, I was offered work in essentially in VFX and I left to, to work there. And I really, really loved the work and I really, really loved the, the, the projects and I loved what I was doing. Um, but it was so uh, demanding. And in a way, I know this is like a funny thing to say, but in a way it's kind of isolating. You're working like a lot on these like independent, small, tiny chunks of much larger projects entirely on your own a lot of the time. Mm. I and mean, you, you have some collaboration, but you know, it's not, not much of that is 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 there um and it's quite technical you know yourself and um so when I was there I actually left to go back to school because I was lucky enough and privileged enough to be able to, to to go back to school later in life as well and so I went back to study game design um under some uh, a collection of absolutely fantastic lecturers and alongside some uh, wonderful students who I was there with at the time as well uh, who are very talented people in the industry now. There's so many people uh, in our industry in Ireland who are uh, wonderful, um, you know, co-students of mine. Uh, and uh, when I was there, we we did a lot of like, you know, teamwork projects and uh, but also creating our own individual projects, which you don't get to do very much in, in film, even if you're doing something like an editing project. You know, there's a huge demand for like a lot of external help. So there was this kind of great combination of being able to do very, very collaborative stuff with a small team where you're each hearing each other all the time and to make things entirely on your own that are very expressive. And the, you know, it's a younger um, medium. So there's a lot like the, the expectations uh, are, are not as, as set around what defines the medium. So there's a lot of like really strange and bizarre games. Uh, some of them are, are big games as well that are really strange and bizarre. And then there's a lot of smaller, like strange projects that are able to get be made because they're made by one person or two people. Uh, and that's, that's, that's amazing. And I've never been um, so happy as when I was like studying and creating all of those small projects with, uh, with people and, and by myself. Mm. Uh, and then when I was in school, I was lucky enough again to um, uh, essentially go in and do some work experience with an uh, indie game development company called Gamberness based in Dublin, uh, working on um, their, their uh, newest project at the time, which, which was called Cardpocalypse, uh, which is, you know, out now on Steam. Wink, wink. <laughs> but that it was, comes at the end. Yeah, that comes. Okay, sorry about that. But it was. <laughs> well, but joking. honestly, the experience was amazing. The team were fantastic. Uh, I had, you know, a real sense of ownership over what I was doing, but a lot of collaboration. It was very creative, and it was just uh, unbelievable. And actually, still, still working for them now, and uh, also still making my own projects now as well. So uh, I couldn't be happier with my change. And it's funny because I've always been sort of I mean in a small way in, a, in the healthiest way possible obsessed with games since I was like a very small child and so it sort of made sense I told a lot of people I was like oh are you working in film I was like oh actually I'm, I'm actually in games now they're like that tracks that makes sense <laughs> I could have told you that so uh yeah yeah I was very lucky but it's yeah that's so that's why I'm now so I'm a, I'm a game writer primarily now but I also do some uh, design and some programming and some art on my own projects as well bit of a jack of all trades really I suppose mm. I love the fact that you mentioned as well how, um, like, from from the South perspective, how there seems to be so much sort of dev talent uh, sort of grown there as well now. Um, and I just sort of wanted to get your take on, especially considering the female season, considering it's an all Ireland guest lineup. Like, um, because I, I'll happily admit, I have a lot of sort of blinkers on when it comes to down south, a lot of the north, up north. I'm a bit more of a level-headed person now uh, when it comes to our, our portion of the island anyway. Like um, two years ago, three years ago, even now nearly, no, two years ago, um, 
two years ago you would if you i wouldn't have been too aware of what was going on here besides maybe what was going on here in Derry with Hypixel and Hytale. Now I'm a lot more aware. Yep. Like you got Bellier, previously Coffee Box, now doing um the Pale Beyond, Amber Tail with Amber Isle, uh, and White Pot doing their own thing with Stargaze and Ho 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 Invasion. But like at the same time, a lot I do have a bit more of a, a sort of blinker sort of type deal with the stuff. Like obviously I know about Romero and sort of the AAA representation in Dublin, like with um, uh, 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 Riot and, um, oh God, my mind's going sort of blank now. Who's the ones behind Baldur's Gate? Larian. Larian, Larian yeah, Larian. Yeah. And then, of course, Ga- uh, Gambrinius as well. Like, um, it feels like now... And Dreamfield, of- let's not forget Dreamfield. Dreamfield oh there. my God, how could I be so stupid? Ah, I think what I'm trying to get at is Ireland is now finally in a place where it's going to start. It's it's starting to be taken seriously as its own sort of hotbed within the games industry. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and you saw like you know this is all stuff that happened with like you know little zero to little sort of you know support from the state on like you know. Uh, supporting games so like I'm on the board of Immert as well at the moment so the game, Irish uh, Game Workers Association and uh, you know we recently heard the informa- uh, the um, announcement about the tax credits coming in for companies here as yeah. well and so it's great I mean I think the really important thing about that is that the state itself and I think like you said international uh, you know uh, investors and publishers uh, workers and you know company owners are all recognizing Ireland as like you know this like you said hotbed sort of a base of amazing like cultural talent creative talent technical know-how you know it's 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 we're we're overqualified for kind of you know how we've been supported up till now so like imagine you know in the next few years when things to really start to build um in the country you know the kind of projects that we're going to be creating and you know the kind of um wonderful creators that we're going to see thrive here if they're you know if they're supported well as well so uh, yeah it's 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 looking up and a lot of publisher interest too, like like Riot, not just like centrally with their own offices in Dublin, but obviously with the Hypixel acquisition, but also, you know, there's a lot more publisher attention too, like Annapurna and Dreamfield with a found and um, Romero Games and Paradox and etc. Like there is a lot more attention now being paid even outside just from a publisher perspective, not just necessarily dev perspective as well. Oh yeah, absolutely, for sure. I mean, it's it's great to see. I mean, we definitely also do want to, for, for this kind of state recognition and support, which, you know, means a lot to people that have been working here as well. We want to make sure that like the indigenous creators here and maybe the people that haven't had the opportunity to, uh, you know, study or to create or have their projects funded here, that those people absolutely are also supported they're like you know they're like the real the real like cream of what the industry is here is the kind of creative minds and then also the technical ability of like students and stuff that are coming out the of different uh, courses in the country so that's like another area that we really really want to see supported uh you know is kind of indigenous creators also Hmm. um i guess finally that in that aspect before we properly move on to zelda like what would you hope would be the sort of at least in the short term, anyway, like within the next, say, year to 18 months or so, what would you say would be the sort of end game here? 
for the Irish games industry, not just necessarily the south, but including the north, the north as well. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see, I would love to see consistently growing high quality employment for people who are currently working in the industry. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see more um, graduates and more graduates of like more varied specialties entering into the industry. I'd like to see some cross skills, like, you know, people who are moving between like the games industry and the film industry and the animation industry here. And I'd also love to see more small projects come out of creators here, to be honest, like some individual projects or some small teams. Mm. I'd like to see some more experimental stuff. Um, you know, so these these games are not just, you know, the, like you said, you know, they're not just pro- um, products. They're, they're cultural products of our country as well. So I'd really like to see um, some very personal, expressive, pieces of art come out of you know the create creators minds uh, in the country so however we can whatever we can do to, to support that as well as bringing you know new people here to be supported by us as well uh, i'd love to see that for mm. sure and and this is the last question i promise on, on this because <laughs> i only just realized this um what about in terms of cross-border collaboration because obviously we've got events like run for the border and stuff like that yeah of there, course but, but like what can, what can we see from that happening, like in terms of, you know, sort of more collaboration between both North and South in a way? I mean, I'd love to see, you know, kind of companies may, maybe have bases in both areas, maybe some more, um, you know, freelance collaboration between different companies. Um, and I'd love to see, yeah, I'd love to see some my, maybe, you know, along that sort of region, people kind of working together, maybe even... Uh, tell some stories you know and we can do I mean that's easy coming from a game writer but it would be great to see some stories actually you know maybe deal with um, you know how people are feeling and what people are thinking and people's experiences uh, you know in the games industry as it's been sort of I mean in, in a way kind of separated you know and and thought of very 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 distinctly from one another um, so yeah I mean the more we can see the more we can support collaboration uh, and the more we can create have the support that we need to create stories that express our individual experiences the more we can use games as a as a platform to generate empathy with one another and to sort of you know break down barriers like that's what I think is great about events like run for the border you know it's like we bring a bunch of people together who might otherwise be separated by even just distance you know and really like get get to know people with a very possibly very different perspective or different ideas Mm. and that's you know always wonderful to see. Mm, absolutely and uh here's hoping we can sort of run run for the border again at some point soon hopefully yeah, when yeah. the pandemic has significantly calmed down and becomes yeah. more of an endemic than a pandemic because i i remember be, uh being at that first uh not the first but it was the second one i remember being at that and just thinking wow this is fucking amazing seeing all these sort of de- uh, developers coming together from north and south just thinking I would love to have more of this, and then obviously the pandemic kicked off. But I would love to see Run for the Border come back relatively soon, and hopefully we'll. It's get actually that. such a wonderful event, and I genuinely hope I I get to see it the next one. Oh, absolutely! Like like just that one event. Yeah, it, it's yeah. I hope I hope we get it at some point in twenty twenty two. I hope we do. I really really hope we do. Fingers crossed. Same here.
let's touch upon your favorite game, The Legend of Zelda, uh, Twilight Princess. Uh, the fourth Zelda game we have had on the show, technically the fifth, because of an unpublished episode that is now basically lost to the winds of time. Um, and Ellen actually basically mentioned what that game was. It was Ocarina. We did have an Ocarina episode at one point, but it is now basically lost to time, basically, never to be published. Very, very thematic. Very, very thematic, very thematic. Um, so you mentioned your past with Ocarina, um, but before Twilight Princess, anyway, like, what was your sort of Zelda history, anyway? Yeah, I mean, like, Ocarina of Time is definitely the one that sticks out in my head, just because it had such an impression, and also was sort of the one that we had in our household. Because obviously it was like a huge release at the time. It was a big deal, mm. um, you know, and it was kind of, I think it was like released either alongside the Nintendo 64 when it came out or like shortly after, but it was a huge 98, deal. about two years after yeah. the N64 came out. Thank yeah. you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, basically I played, yeah, so I played um, Ocarina of Time and then I can't remember on what platform we had it, but we definitely had the first Zelda and the second Zelda. I played a decent bit of the first Zelda and I think I thought of it more like a like this was like after Ocarina of Time that I played this and I think I thought of it more as a toy than as a game that I was trying to complete goals because uh, and you know I'll talk about this a bit more later as well but like I'm actually quite a big fan of linearity and uh, I'm actually a big fan of like linear experiences and bespoke experiences that are like planned and paced in a particular way so I wasn't a super huge fan of um of the first Zelda, and that's also a reason why I'm not a super huge fan of Breath of the Wild. Although I do uh... love Breath of the Wild, I do love Breath of the Wild. Before everyone attacks me, <laughs> and I go down in in the most infamous of history books, I do. I know I do. I love Breath of the Wild, um, but it is not in my mind what I think of when I think of why I love Zelda games. And this is like obviously, and this is something that's great about games as a medium is it's very subjective. I'm saying this uh, to put up a shield <laughs> before I keep talking. Are you kidding it's me? Games are objective. You must it's like this game. It's a very subjective must... medium. <laughs> and I think that's that's lovely. What a fantastic thing, you know, is that we can each see, you know, different things when we play the, the same game. We can each have different perspectives and experiences and things that we walk away with. Like me talking about walking away from Ocarina of Time with trauma, uh, you know, plenty of other people, and but also magic, but plenty of other people, you know, walk away from it with, you know, a love of, you know, puzzle solving or, a, a, you know, a love of nature or, you know, a feeling, a sad feeling about their childhood there's like so many different ways to read these kinds of experiences and games because they're so complicated they're sort of like you know 4d in a in a sense in in their experience compared to something like you know books or film or poetry or music it's 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 such a complex medium and i do think that that's one of the most beautiful things about it um so i did yeah i played zelda one uh and then i played zelda two and i think at the time when i was a kid when i played it, i I kind of despised it, I, which I think is kind of seems to be a consistent sort of feeling. Not maybe not uh, despising it, but it not being people's favorites. It's, it seems a lot of people view it as kind of clunky and kind of um, sort of complicated, and you know, uh, just essentially, I've, I've very rarely seen it placed in people's like favorite lists. Um, much later in time, I played Link to the Past and. Uh, when it originally came out, and this is like very obviously uh, related to Twilight Princess, I played Wind Waker, but we didn't actually have it in my house when I was a kid. 
Uh, I played it, I think, at my friend's house uh, for a while. And, you know, there was one of two things was going to happen here. Either I was going to, you know, walk away from it and go, eh, or I was going to be obsessed with it and like beg my parents to get it for me. And I was just kind of not that into it at the time, which I look back on as unfair because uh, I have played it since then. I played the HD re-release. Um, and before that, even I played more of it as well. Mm. And I do love it. I do think it's an excellent game. It's one of the first games that I recommend to people who have never played a Zelda game before. So I'll say, oh, you should definitely pick up and play Wind Waker. Mm. Um, but when I was a kid, I kind of, I think I wasn't entirely captured by the sort of pirate theming and sailing. And I also thought, I think the, the ocean felt a little empty, um, which again is like just a totally subjective thing, but that was just the impression that I got. Um, yeah, and then, and then Twilight Princess came out. And uh, what happened with that was that I got a Wii as a present for, I think it was Christmas, one of the years. And I think this is when I was 14, I think, or I could have been 13 or 14. And uh, I got the Wii and I, and I either along with it, I got Twilight Princess or very, very shortly after I got it. And I loved it immediately. It, and this, this comparison is drawn very often, the comparison between Twilight Princess and Ocarina of Time. Some people have made criticisms of it saying like, oh, isn't Twilight Princess just a remake of Ocarina of Time? Which I think is a little unfair, to be honest. Um, it's 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 a remake as much as any Zelda game is a remake of any other Zelda game. They have you know a formula and a setting and you know a world that they're set in and um and but when I played it, I just saw this you know all of the magic that was in Ocarina of Time, but it had aged with me. It had become a little bit more mature and a little bit darker. And like I said earlier, I, I've you know always kind of loved, been terrified of, but also loved horror. Um, and I've and I've always loved the kind of magic and fantasy elements of of Twilight Princess. So it just had me from like the opening, and I I played it right through. I, I didn't rush through it though. I'm a very slow player, um, and I took a couple of weeks to play through it. Uh, but I looked forward to it every day, and uh, yeah, it's uh, indelibly burnt into my into my brain like Ocarina of Time is. Mm. Well, that answers my next question about whether it was the GameCube or Wii version anyway, so... Um, it was, yeah. It was but, the Wii version, but it was very weird for me to see the GameCube version, because I, I knew it came out on GameCube, but I was like, and? But then I saw it, and I was like, what is this? It's totally mirror image. The whole game, like, literally flipped um, because of this sword mechanic, I think, is why they did that. Mm. And it's just so bizarre to see a, a space that you existed in when you were younger like totally flipped it's it's quite bizarre it's like imagine seeing a mirror image of your whole world it's very mm. odd um the thing that sort of sticks out with me is obviously if, if you had played the wii version which you, which you did um is how the motion controls sort of played a factor in it. like how did you find them so i kind of love motion controls which again it's a very unpopular opinion uh i i do I, so I, I, I like the motion controls in uh, Twilight Princess and I really like them in Skyward Sword. And anyone that has an issue with that can come and fight oh, me. Oh, wow. Skyward Sword. <laughs> now you're just actually asking. For you know, I'm baiting them on purpose. Like, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy this. It gives me, it gives me energy. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I, I, I did really, really like it in Twilight Princess. I, I, I totally understand the criticisms of uh, motion controls, especially in Skyward Sword, because I know it did, it alienated a lot of people, especially mm. like accessibility wise. It's it's not very accessible for a lot of people. Mm. So I actually totally understand that criticism. I get people just not liking motion controls. I just happen to really love them. I particularly like them in Twilight Princess because it's more gestural than anything. It's not like one-to-one, -one, which in itself is quite cool, but to sort of flick your wrist and, and, and have 
like link in front of you to this unbelievably amazing flourish makes you feel very cool kind of that like guitar hero effect where you know you're imagining yourself and you're like oh my god I look so cool right now and then if you actually reflected a mirror on yourself you'd be so embarrassed by how how uh, incredibly yes. like weak you look <laughs> but um no it's it's a uh, it's uh I, I really liked it I really liked the motion controls what, what out of curiosity what other sort of motion games sort of stand out for you in terms of thinking oh i really like these especially in motion controls anyway motion controls let me think uh one that does kind of stick out to me is i did have trauma center for the Uh, wii i don't know if people know trauma yeah trauma center it's like a surgery simulator kind of game with a little bit of like narrative going on in the background it's quite a silly game mm. but uh Comes from but the team behind persona anyway like the exact yeah yeah persona anyways yeah yeah exactly and but it's it's and that kind of that sort of sticks out to me as, as something that i quite liked but i've always kind of been a bit of a fan and i'll talk about this a little tiny bit honorable mentions but i've always been a quite a fan of like novel control schemes and stuff that kind of messes with your expectation of things like i said i quite liked guitar hero for a while i played that quite a lot um when i was younger um, even though I was terrible, almost objectively terrible at it, uh, but, but I enjoyed it. That's the most important thing. But other like motion control wise, I mean, I, I always loved like you know Wii Sports and stuff as well. Like obviously I got the Wii, so I think it came with it, or it's you know it was a huge selling point when it came out originally. So I really really enjoyed that. Um, I can't think now what else, what other motion control games were there. Uh, I'm sure if I think about it for a bit, I remember. Oh. I had one, this is actually an interesting one, which is I used to play Zack and Wiki. Again, I don't know if you know Zack and Wiki, which is a, a quite an odd puzzle game. Um, I, I couldn't tell you really much of anything about it, except that it has like quite an odd mechanic. It rings, where it, a bell. Kind of sets, it rings a bell, anyway. Yeah, it sort of sets in front of you this sort of, it feels almost miniature, like this big setup of like a problem that you have to solve that sometimes it has a ticking clock or sometimes it's, um, you know, just kind of a, a problem that you have. And it just sets you there and it's like, go, try to solve this puzzle. But it has multiple ways of solving every puzzle and scores you based on how well you do. But it involves motion controls. It involves stuff like carefully pulling something out of a wall or like shaking something a particular way and you know, it, I don't know if the motion controls were used excellently in that, but it was, it's certainly an interesting game to play. I just checked up on Zach and Wiki and I, and I know, know exactly what one you're on about. Yeah. Capcom, exactly. Actually. Yeah, yeah, but it's actually, I think that's an underrated game. So if you can get Zach and Wiki and play it, anyone who's listening, I, I would. It's quite an interesting game. Hmm. Um, so, how, how did you find the story then within Twilight Princess? Because obviously, all of, all of the games are sort of standalone in their own right, but like they definitely have. From what I remember of what I've played at Twilight Princess, anyway, and admittedly, it's not very much, certainly not as much as compared to even Wind Waker, let alone Breath of the Wild. Um, because I've said this before in the show, I only played like a combined 10 hours of the Zelda series pre Breath of the Wild, of Ocarina on 3DS, Wind Waker on the Wii U, and Twilight Princess on Wii, basically. And I've, I've obviously played a lot more now, significantly thanks to Breath of the Wild. But, like, each story also has its own themes and all that there. Like, they're basically sort of save Hyrule, save... Oh, um, it has a narrative save, formula, for save, sure. Yeah, it definitely has yeah. that sort of tropey formula. But yeah. they have their own different themes. And from what I remember, what I played of Twilight Princess, anyway, it's very... It's safe to say, like, and we sort of alluded to this, it's it's dark. Yeah, it is kind of dark. I mean, 
it's, you know, starts, I mean, I say starts, but like, I mean, okay, so this is one of the negatives that people quote very often. I totally see this, which it has a quite a slow opening. Uh, now, when I was younger, I really liked it. Cause like I said, I've always kind of been an anxious gamer mm. and someone who like, if I'm, if, if, you know, I'm not, I'm not in games to be anxious, you know, I don't like things to be really incredibly punishing. Uh, so what I, so when I went into it, I was like, oh, this is a, like a nice slow opener. And like I had a, a quite, a, quite a kind of cinematic sort of aspect to it. And that put a lot of people off who were like, where is the action? Get me to the action, which again, I, I totally understand. But I really loved it. And it set this like, you know, starting area of like Orden Village and all these villagers and everything. And it was so pleasant. Like I've never seen such a like pleasant, like basic opener for a game. It actually like inspired a couple of smaller projects of mine. I've kind of have the thing about like safe starting areas in games that are like mm. just such a warm, pleasant atmosphere. And just, you know, so they can ruin it. That's why they set that up, <laughs> you know, because uh, game um, game developers um, hate humans. <laughs> This is a known fact. <laughs> so basically, uh, you know, it came out of the you come out of the gate basically with child kidnapping. So like that's incredibly dark. There's in this game. I mean, I, I, by the way, I will like. I hope it's okay that I'm generally going to be like spoiling the hell out oh, of Twilight fuck, Princess. Oh fuck! It's a sixteen-year-old. Yeah, game this is the point. thing. Is I think if people were going to play Twilight Princess, they would. <laughs> I mean, hopefully not. Hopefully, some people will listen to this and maybe try, go and attempt in some way to pick up Twilight Princess and play it. But, um, you know, there's, there's like this kind of this child kidnapping. There's a lot of possession. There's a lot of failure. There's a lot of, you know, acceptance of like, this is a terrible situation and we just accept it, you know, because this is what's being put in front of us. Um, there's kind of a, a big emphasis on like loneliness and loss of safety and homeland. And like, there's a lot of that. I mean, you see that scattered through other Zelda games. But I think it is about emphasis and I think it's about the things that it's put with the time that's given. You know, if you have, uh, you know, a hard tone change in a movie, it's something that a lot of people will point out and say, God, they went from that like very dark scene to comedy very fast. And I think this game gives a lot of time uh, to really feel very dark moments in cutscenes and narrative and character moments. Um, it seems like an unimportant thing, but I think it really does have an effect. And, and again, it can annoy some gamers. Like if you're playing and you're like, you know, I think there's something like a 20 minute lead in before there's actual interactivity. And then again, there's like another huge break before there's any actual combat. So, so basically it, I, it's what can otherwise be described as uh, Kojimism, basically. Yeah, essentially, that's a really good com comparison, actually. Yeah, kind of. But I think that does give even if it's somewhat clumsy sometimes uh, you know i think it does give a sense that there's a respect for storytelling um in something like this and i think it's a big part of why people love zelda games is because the story is not the most original or challenging um but it's very sincere i think and I think a lot of people pick up on that. And I think the fact that they care so much about the gameplay and it's so tight and it's so well-designed and then there's a sincerity to the narrative. Those two things by themselves might not appear very strong, but again, like, and I think this is really important to emphasize, I think Zelda games and the reason so many people say that they're their favorite games is that they're more than the sum of their parts. They're, everything comes together so well in, in these games that they leave such an impact on people. Um, and so many other games do so many things that are in all these Zelda games. They do really, really strong puzzles or really strong story or, you know, interesting characters or identifiable formulas or, you know, beautiful visuals. But it, when something nails all those things together and they feel cohesive, it's, it, you know, you never forget it. Mm. Um, 
I want to touch upon that much later on, but like in terms of the sort of themes that you sort of mentioned there, especially with the emphasis on things like loneliness and stuff like that there, like how do you think games like Zelda sort of have a handle on those sorts of things anyway? Like uh, how they express that kind of theme. Yeah, yes. I mean, I think they, I think a lot of it, I mean, like we can talk about the one really obvious thing that a lot of people talked about at the time, which was the visuals. You know, a lot of people, some people complained, some people complimented it, that it was a lot darker because it was followed up, like it, it followed right after Wind Waker. And that is a hard tone change, like I oh, mentioned earlier, you know? And uh, I, I, and I think a lot of people saw that. And what's interesting about that is, in and of itself, you know, that kind of grim, dark thing, it's not, it's something people complain about. And I totally, I myself have been someone who's complained about that in the past. But when you have something like Zelda that I think is very, uh, it's very fairy tale like, it's very folklore like, it kind of evokes a lot of childhood concepts. And um, it can work really well to pick a primary theme and then like sort of um, complementary elements throughout it. So they made the Zelda game dark at its core, which meant that all of these really nice, pleasant moments and all these like supportive moments and all these positive character moments really stand up against how things are presented. So the dark stuff that's in this game, in my opinion, like stands up so much more than dark stuff included in other Zelda games. Like there's actually a really, really dark ending, if I remember correctly, to Wind Waker. There's like a speech that like Ganon gives about his homeland being destroyed and them stealing his homeland. But it's like, it's it's oddly juxtaposed against like how bright and happy and positive and cell shaded and cartoony everything is, um, which for some people is it is it is an appeal aspect, you know, um, but for me for this game it's you know when you take this riding through Hyrule for instance or uh, Hyrule Fields and you're on horseback if that's like very cartoony and there's very bubbly music playing in the background it feels one way and if you change i mean you've seen this in you know it, it's like a basic rule of um of, of of audio design it's like if you change that music to something in a minor key or something sadder it takes on a whole different emotion that like traveling across you know this sort of like broad wide open field can feel very different so i do think audio is a big part of that and i think it changes um, a big facet of what it could be telling just by that huge. single change in audio huge yeah and uh yeah i think that uh, and again personally i think that twilight princess has some of the best music in any zelda game because it has it has for a lot of familiar tunes but a lot of the stuff is just it stands out so much so like Midna's lament is so sad and beautiful, you know. And I listen to I listen to the um, Lake Hylia theme from Twilight Princess multiple times a week, every week. Just as like one of my chill out like songs that I put in the background to like really really mellow me out. Uh, the the uh, the music that played the music I don't even know if you can call it music or the sounds that play when like you fight Twilight uh, beasts is like really unnerving. It's that kind of music concrete almost like dissonant sounds and it's very uncanny it kind of reminds me a little bit of honestly silent hill 2 a little bit you know it's got that kind of uncanny aspect to it at times and it goes so extreme at different points of like humor and cuteness and darkness that it just really hits a chord for me personally mm. i a silent hill comparison with zelda Never heard that before. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not being ironic when I say that. I'm not being flip when I say that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I kind of. Yeah. I mean, I kind of probably played the two of them near enough or in the same time actually. And like, you know, Santa Two is 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 one of my other favorite games. I know a lot of people that know me that listen to this podcast are going to be really really surprised that I'm not talking about Silent Hill Two. Um, but I love aspects of yeah. Like it's it's funny to say, but I love aspects of Twilight Princess for similar reasons to why I love Silent Hill Two. You know, it's, it's got that sense of like loneliness of being 
trapped in, I don't know, sort of to, <laughs> with the risk of being sounding extremely dramatic, the kind of sins of the past, uh, sins of ambition uh, that sort of come across in this Zelda game. And that's present in all Zelda games. You know, it's sort of a, oh, I don't want to say the phrase. I'm a game writer. I can't say the phrase. They're like, say you know, the it's, phrase, almost like, it's almost like a, 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 a person who's very important traveling <laughs> throughout a land to complete some kind of important quest um, but uh it, it does that i mean listen lots of people critique that but it has it has an appeal for a reason it's brought up many times for a reason um and i think if you like i said if you ace every aspect of that really really well oh nothing feels like that it's like you know it's like what they do on cooking shows you know if you like it's better to like make it absolutely perfect you know uh, loaf of bread than it is to like fail dramatically at a lava cake you know it's 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 uh it can uh, it can it can be truly something amazing. I think if you nail every aspect of that of that story. Mm. Um, Twilight Princess big party trick is one that I did not progress far enough into the sort of witness firsthand, but the Twilight Realm and sort of transformation into Wolf Link, basically, for the lack of yeah. a better expression. Um, Talk to me about that, because like again, I I've not played as far, that far into the game at all. They sort of experienced that firsthand, but it is such a con. I want to say controversial aspect of the game because like I remember that being sort of front and center to what the game was about at the time. Anyway, yeah, I mean. It seems like an odd thing to I sort sort of emphasize, I suppose. I mean, it's really interesting to see the mechanics shift up and change. And there is like this weird feeling when you're playing as like a wolf in this game that uh, you're, oh, I can't think of another word now. So now I have to say, it feels sort of like uh, neutered or sort of like you've had all these like abilities that you have around you, all these items and stuff removed from you. And you feel sort of vulnerable and you feel, I mean, I did when I played is like, I felt like oh, I got to get out of this form immediately. This is terrible. This is like an infliction. You know, and I got to run through to do whatever I have to do to get out of this state that I'm in. Um, but honestly, I have to say, like the second you turn into, um, you know, Wolf Wolf Link in this in in, in Twilight Princess, you meet Midna, and I just I didn't really focus too much on my Wolf form because I was too busy absolutely loving Midna as a character. Um, it's one of my favorite aspects of Twilight Princess. Uh, she's just, an, I, I, I do think it's kind of sad that following on from that game, I think Midna was a huge appeal of that. And I think a lot of people loved her. I don't know why they didn't invest a little bit more into side characters from that point on, because I think they were always quite weak. Um, and Midna is the one time that I actually point out that it's a very strong character. Um, maybe that was a little bit of um, influence from seeing, I, I've probably actually this probably came out after, but I was just thinking about Jack and Daxter and just, uh, it, it feels a little bit similar to that in ways. Uh, but she's such a like a sarcastic, uh, interesting character, uh, and I think that that kind of tone of like God, I'm very reluctantly dealing with you, like throughout this whole ordeal. But also, we're both going through this at the same time is just so appealing. And her like visual design is amazing. And actually, again, one of those things where it's sort of a combination of like appeal and unnerving visuals is sort of very early on like she like rides your back when you're in wolf form which is also an incredibly cool idea visually uh but you, when you first approach something that's like interactive her hair like comes out of her head becomes a giant claw and like prepares to like 
grab onto things and interact with things and that's like such an unnerving concept and link just kind of goes along with it and is you know totally fine with it and it's uh, fine this is what it is this is just what the situation I'm in. What am I going to do? Complain about it? I can't even speak. Uh, but it's <laughs> I, couldn't speak be- I couldn't speak before. What am I going to do now? Uh, but uh, yeah, I, and so like I, I love her character, and I, I think it's a it's an incredibly interesting aspect of this. And she has her own arc and 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 motivations and stuff going on behind what she's doing as well. And I think that that's really interesting. Hmm. So be uh, Legend of Midna, Twilight Princess. <laughs> Oh, if only, if only. Um, I feel like the way you're you're describing her is like, because in in Zelda games, there's always a variety of, in some form or another, a trio of Link, Zelda, Ganon, or Ganondorf. Now for sure, you, yeah. you have basically, Edna, basically. Yeah, for sure. I actually think that that's a little sad, to be honest. I'd like to see more variety in those characters because the roles can always be there like you don't have to sacrifice a formula that you like uh for you know these these kind of characters to be recurring although I have to say like when I was younger I always used to rename Link like Ellen when I was a kid so uh (laughs) so you know to me that was like me as a main character and then these other characters around me but I do actually think and and this is another thing I have a kind of a, a bit of a strong opinion on is I loved Xanth I thought Zant was a really, really cool villain in uh, Twilight Princess. I thought he was like intimidating and different and had, you know, very strong motivation on his own. And it kind of annoyed me at the end. Um, big spoiler. It kind of annoyed me at the end when it's like, oh, he's just, you know, this kind of secondary. I know this does happen in all the Zelda games, that he's this secondary villain to, to, to Ganon, um, which was quite sad to see. And he turns into this kind of silly, it's like a joke reveal where it's like, oh, he's actually really silly and embarrassing and over the top and dramatic. Um, which over the top and dramatic is fine, but this kind of very, very over the top, like he's played as a joke character, as a reveal. And I think that's quite weak because I thought he was quite a strong character to begin with. Um, and I would like to see more varied villains with more varied motivations um, around in future Zelda games and more varied uh, companion characters as well. Um, yeah, I'd like to see that uh, as a bit of a change up to the formula. Hmm. Um. So talk to me then about some of the quest mission and design. Like from from what I've been re- while I was reading up earlier today before we, we came on here, it feels like looking through some of the some of the stuff that I've seen sort of written about it online, it feels like some of the sort of quest design now it sort of feels like this may be a sort of insult in a way. It's not intended as such, but it feels like sort of streamlined a little bit, if that makes sense. String line, like like linear, like not not even linear, like sort of string. Well, yes, but string lined as in to say, this is so. This is sort of one of the examples that I sort of read when sort of looking up, um, the HD version that came out a few years ago. Like, you would catch a fish in order to lure a cat to please its owner, in order to buy a slingshot, and I think yeah. this was at the start of the game. Yeah, the start of the game especially has this problem where it does feel entirely linear and i do like i said before i like linear experiences i like bespoke stuff i like ordered experiences one of the things i i wasn't as keen on in in breath of the wild and again i i only say that as a comparison to zelda games not as a a game on its own which i think is unbelievable fantastic incredibly impressive i played through almost the entire thing um 
I have this issue with games where if I get like really, really, really into them, I'll be kind of not want to play the ending on purpose because it makes me kind of sad to finish it. Mm. Uh, so I have that, that issue with a couple of games. So I did that with Breath of the Wild where I enjoyed it so much that I was like, I can't, how can I? Also, I was scared to play it as well, <laughs> the ending. But uh, no, it was a... Uh, so yeah, I for sure see that, especially the beginning. And this is part of the problem with the opening, which I said I love, but I actually think it's a quite a risky move because I know you're going to lose so many people who are very interested in decision making and you know immediate and have a huge emphasis on interactivity. You're going to lose them really, really quickly because it's a really long opener, you know. And if you're if you're someone who like really enjoys that kind of emotional experience and storytelling, then I think you're going to be fine. But you know, if you want to pick up a sword and swing it from the second you start it's going to be it's it's going to be a barrier to entry for you uh, i do think that that lessens up later in the game uh, i think that the dungeons uh which i i love so much which is a big part of why i love zelda games is the dungeons in twilight princess are fantastic they're some of the best designed dungeons i think um and they have that really um you know satisfying feeling of i think so I, this is not my my word that I came up with. I can't remember who said it, but a, a game I think a game designer um, or possibly a game journalist said it. They said these dungeons in Zelda games in general have this really nice feeling of like slowly and surely untying a knot, and it feels very very satisfying. And I think that. Um, these games maintain that and they do have that kind of side quest aspect to it. They do have a lot of like travel and traversal, um, but definitely not nowhere near as much as Breath of the Wild. I wouldn't even say almost as much as Skyward Sword. There's actually one of my criticisms I would have of Twilight Princess is that they could have done with a few more side quests, to be honest. Um, you know, there's kind of really just like this bug collection. There's a couple of like specific side quests, like, you know, the Giovanni kind of uh, freedom side quest. And there's like Malomart stuff. Um, but, you know, uh, for the most part, yeah, it's it's quite a linear experience. But I think that really comes down to maybe preference. You know, it's like, are you the kind of person that really, really wants to play a completely open world game with like a lot of, you know, freedom and decision making, which I which I also love. Like I'm replaying The Witcher 3 right now, you know, and that's part of the main reason why I love it. Like I, I kind of reluctantly mm. do the main quest in that, which is kind of funny. But uh, yeah, the, I think that the kind of paced aspect of it is one of the things I love about Twilight Princess. Um. What is it about uh, something you sort of, something you said there? Um, what is it about Zelda games that make it feel? What's what was it you said? Uh, easy to sort of unwind to you. Know, I think yeah, that sort of design. untying of a knot. Yeah, Again, not my untying, phrase. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, but, but what like, is it about it that makes it yeah. feel so worthwhile? Anyway. Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends. Uh, like, if you think about it, like one of the ways I like to think about it is you break it down into like smaller and smaller parts, you know, and the mm. way that I think that they segment their gameplay experiences feels incredibly satisfying because, you know, the human brain, we can only absorb so much information and so yeah. much puzzle at a time. And so Zelda stuff, I mean, a lot of people will actually say this, that Zelda's actually really easy, you know, and personally, you know, I'm not, when I play games and this again, depends on your player, but like when I play games, I don't, I'm not looking for a punishing experience. I'm looking for that really, really nice, solid walk the line balance between you know challenge and reward you know that 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 sort of you know thing where you walk into a room and there's a locked door in front of you and you know an eye that opens a metallic eye that opens just above it 
And this is this actually a small uh, puzzle from from Skyward Sword. And there's a raised platform in the center of the room, and you kind of like you walk around and you're like, hmm, like what? How, how am I supposed to get through the store? You look for keys, you look for chests. You look for, there's nothing in this room at all. You walk up to the platform and the eye opens. And you're like, okay, like am I meant to stab it or shoot it or something? You try everything and you're like, hmm, there's nothing. You take out your sword and it's one-to-one motion controls in Skyward Sword. So you move the sword like this. You notice that the eye is following the sword, hmm. and you kind of you swoop back and forth like a couple of times nothing happens and then eventually you realize oh if you do this it spins and it gets dizzy breaks and falls down and the door opens and it's that thing if you walk in a room there's a very very obvious problem there's a very obvious question and there's a really kind of outside the box way of solving that 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 puzzle and that feels incredibly satisfying um, and and there's a nice balance between that kind of novel i have no idea how to solve this and sort of familiar things like block moving puzzles or you know room traversal puzzles or water level puzzles that you know you go up and you recognize but you don't necessarily know how to unravel that you know at any one moment so i suppose if i had to put it down to one word i'd probably say novelty you know if you they keep things fresh and changed up enough you know, and you slowly increase the difficulty, maybe bring back some stuff that you saw way earlier and kind of flip back and forth between all those different things, you know, creates this amazing sense of, I am a genius. <laughs> you know, you're not, you're the same as anyone else playing a Zelda game. You're slowly picking apart this knot, you know, picking apart a knot is, does not take genius to do, but it feels incredibly satisfying, mm. you know? And I think that that's a big part of it is that, you know, it's it's balance and it's a lot of different little things that add together. Again, it's more than the sum of its parts, you know, the experience. Um, so I think there's a lot of really interesting design lessons to be learned from Zelda games. Uh, you know, Twilight Princess just happens to be my favorite, but there's lots of interesting stuff to see in all these kinds of games. I feel like a lot of these Zelda games, certainly from Ocarina onwards, at least in terms of a modern equivalent, like they do feel like they impart a lot of different design um lessons like and, and i think you actually sort of alluded to one there uh ellen in terms of um if you go into twilight princess as a sort of straight up action game from the very beginning it's not going to go sort of well to yeah. uh, like but whereas with breath of the wild you're just sort of thrust out into the world from the very beginning by nintendo and you just go right here here's what no not even that just like okay here's the world Go nuts. Yeah. That's not even the world. It's literally just the opening plateau of the game. Yeah. <laughs> but like that plateau is still bigger than a majority of open worlds you'd see in games today. And in that aspect, you're open, they sort of go and do whatever the hell you want. And if that means, yeah. you know, go off attacking uh, from the offset, then happy fucking birthday to you, friend. You can get to do that. So like, there's not necessarily a question to that. I, it's just something that I sort of picked up on in terms of what you were saying. But like, I think in terms of a designer perspective, anyway, like there's definitely Zelda games where you can sort of take away different lessons from each game, anyway. For sure, absolutely. You know, and there's different, there's different, uh, you know, priorities for different kinds of players met. I think by a variety of different Zelda games, and you can see that in how passionately people will, you know, announce their favorite games. You know, they'll say like, "Wind Waker is absolutely my favorite Zelda game," and maybe those people are like really into thematic adventures, you know. And then someone will say, "Breath of the Wild is my favorite Zelda game," and someone's really into freedom and creative problem solving and combat mechanics. And then you know, someone might say Twilight Princess, and they might be, you know, um. D- desperately anxious all of the time and need some like <laughs> need some uh, way of expressing that no i'm just kidding but like you know it's um 
it's it's really interesting to see the different ways that um you know designers over at Nintendo have uh, sort of interpreted and experimented and explored with each of these Zelda games, which I think they all take a bit of a risk, which is why I think people feel so strongly. Like people, we often joke, you know, at the start of this podcast about, uh, you know, oh no, the Ocarina of Time fans are coming after me or, you know, uh, and then I think this is because, you know, people feel very, very passionate about it because it does something that games that are designed for everyone cannot do uh, necessarily, um, you know, which is kind of hit that, incredibly specific niche sweet spot for a lot of people you know and uh, it's it's quite successfully done in Zelda games I think mm. um, da, da, da. um so we sort of talked about it there but like specifically like let's let's delve into a little more the dungeon design because it's obviously it's a key factor if not the key factor around Zelda games like what, what were your sort of memories from that anyway Oh, from Twilight Princess specifically? I mean, yeah. I, I love the dungeons in Twilight Princess. I, you know, have a lot of, like, good memories. Like, uh, one that really, like, comes to mind is the Snow Peak Ruins, which is sort of the mountainous, snowy sort of uh, uh, um, dungeon. And it's funny, because, like, when I think of, you know, dungeons in Zelda games, when I think of thematic dungeons, like, I think of, oh, there's usually, like, you know, an ice dungeon, there's usually a fire dungeon, desert, there's usually, you know, a forest one. Um, there's settings that I prefer. So like I prefer to spend time in a forest setting. Like my brain likes grass and trees, you know? Um, so I, I, I kind of fear sort of water levels and, and ice levels in general. But Snow Peak Ruins is so interestingly, like the, the thematics of it is done so well. So it's basically like someone's house, you know? It's essentially done up like a manor, like this, this, this couple's sort of castle slash manor. And it feels, you know, like you're in someone's house solving these kind of puzzles. And it's it's overall like this Twilight Princess, I think even more so than, than any of the Zelda games, very puzzly. Um, it has a lot, a lot of puzzle mechanics. There are a lot of different ones. It kind of feels like they pulled out like every possible thing they could have thought of to do with the puzzle. Um, and so I particularly love that. Like uh, the boss uh, combat in, in, in the Snowpeak Ruins is against the wife of the man that you're, you're helping. And she turns into this like terrifying demon thing, which by the way is another example of like that, you know, that horror included in Twilight Princess. It's a really big jump scare when you walk in, you're like, oh, it's that nice little, like, oh, it's a nice little woman that I was helping earlier. And she turns around like full 360 head turn and a big loud, like kind of, you know, orchestra sting and this like demonic face. And like, you know, 14 year old me is, oh God. And then you have to fight her and you have to look in the floor as a giant mirror you know, to to hit her down off the ceiling and to know where she's going to land so that she doesn't crush you and kill you. And it's like, it's so exciting, but also like very thematic and very well done. And another one that I really love is Arbiter's Grounds, which is brought up a lot by, by Twilight Princess fans as, as a big one that they love because it has it's got such an amazing sense of adventure to it. But also, again, it's really quite horrifying because it's very dark. There's a lot of quicksand. There's a lot of uh, ghosts and demons. There's the Redeads or Gibdo, depending on, you know, who you ask, kind of haunting the place. And, you know, the Redeads are terrifying. Like they slowly, very slowly move towards you. Uh, you know, with these huge, strong attacks and they freeze you in place as well. And there's nothing you can do. And that's terrifying, you know, and, and but there's a lot of like bow and arrow, you know, shooting from a huge distance at a, a sniper in a crow's nest throughout Arbiter's Grounds around the outside of it. And it's just incredibly satisfying. Like you feel like Indiana Jones going through Arbiter's Grounds, I think. Um, and that's that's incredibly satisfying. Um, and then you got, you know, Castle in the Sky is unbelievable because you're you're traversing it again with this double claw shot which like everyone loves the claw shot you know in in zelda games it's, it's so satisfying we all just want one in real life 
but you're you're traversing it with these this double claw shot and there's a lot of like really really clever puzzle mechanics about like lowering yourself into areas that you would assume you would be able to get to you know vertically by climbing and you know the floor is falling away and that again is is kind of terrifying um and then there's uh you know a lot of other sort of interesting uh ideas and mechanics and and to do with theming dungeons so like one is temple of time i think it is uh, and i hope i'm not confusing this with uh, city in the sky but i think temple of time is you you enter it's like an old broken down ruined temple and you bring it back uh, from the past and you enter it and it's beautiful gleaming and it's all tile and gold and, and 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 metal and as you move through it there's like these automaton robots attacking you again moving very slowly and providing these huge wallops which is innately terrifying and you see these throughout it and you move through move through move through it, and you get to the boss room and you step in and like while you're moving through it, you're also seeing like some Lazalfos and some spiders as well, uh, which terrify me automatically anyway. And then you move into the final boss room and you see these kind of broken down automatons in the corner. You're like, oh, I'm going to fight these giant robots. And then when you step in, they don't do anything. And you have this cutscene moment where Link's like, what's going on? And then looks up and sees a giant, creepy, like hairy spider boss, essentially the big Goma boss um on the Thank ceiling god and i did that... not play any more of that game because that <laughs> would have i would have tossed it de- no i wouldn't have tossed it i would have snapped it in half then i would have thrown it like a fucking frisbee i i always had like terrible arachnophobia as well from when i was a kid so like that scared the living bejesus out of me like so so badly um and but it was great because it was it really got me because you it totally expect you know because the mini boss is like a knight you know, and it's they're very themed of the kind of dungeon that you're in. Uh, so it's 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 really there's some really interesting use of a combination of design and messing with players' expectations through theming, which I think is really interesting. Like a layer subversion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's something that we underuse in game design, is that using the narrative story setting to kind of you know complement the design that's happening in the basic mechanics. There's a huge divide there, I think, between uh, you know, narrative and gameplay that if we if we combine those more often and we worked through them more often from the very start of a game through the very end, we can get some really interesting stuff happening. And I think that's one of the reasons why Zelda sticks out in so many people's minds as like a very, very strong example of, you know, their their own personal favorite experiences playing games. Hmm. Um, so the Zelda games, they have a sort of free line in terms of how they look and I mean, like art style and all that there, like, you sort of alluded to it earlier, but like the transition, for example, from Wind Waker to Twilight Princess is incredibly jarring. Like the art design in Wind Waker is so itself shaded, cartoony, but absolutely beautiful, and is definitely if if people say that's the reason why Wind Waker is their favorite game, I would go. You know what? Fair play. Fair for play. sure yeah i, I, I would totally get it sense. i would get it because like it's it's beautiful so beautiful stunning yeah. stunning um but it, like you say like going from that to sort of this realistic look within twilight princess it, it is such a jarring transition and then and, and then even just sort of to go from there like skyward sword um sort of half realistic half sort of cartoony i wouldn't say self-shaded necessarily it almost feels kind of watercolor there's yeah, a bit of a, like that, watercolor that's inspiration exactly in the i was gonna say i just didn't know if it was the right one but that mm. that's exactly it and then you get things like um breath of the wild which is a lot more 
not necessarily cartoon, not no, not necessarily realistic, but it's more self. No, not. I don't even know what to call uh, Breath of the Wild. I think but... it might be considered cel-shaded Breath of the Wild. I mean, te- technically, which, what does that really mean when it comes to I mean, to it's not realistic. I, I can definitely yeah. see that. But, like, yeah. it, it, there's there's an element of realism to it with the majority of it being sort of cel-shaded. And then the Link's Awakening remake that came out a few years ago for the Switch, that was definitely more in line of... It's like toy-like. Toy exactly, toy-like. Yeah. And so, uh, with Twilight Princess in particular, anyway, like the the look of the game, anyway, like it certainly fits with the darker aspect of it, anyway. Yeah, but I like, and then like I said, p- people bring up the dark visuals of that game an awful lot, but I think it's 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 easy to see. You could see almost anything is dark compared to Wind Waker. Like Wind Waker hmm. is possibly an example of one of the most vibrant, bright you know, cartoon, like, cell shade, traditional cell shaded that you could possibly, like, imagine as an example. Like, if you wanted to give an example that was an extreme, you know, Wind Waker is a perfect example of that. Um, So I feel like it was almost unfortunate to follow it up with Twilight Princess. I mean, if you compare Twilight Princess to a couple of other, like, grimdark kind of visual stuff, um, I think it probably, people would be calling it cartoony, which is kind of funny, Mm. um, because it definitely has a lot of, like, cartoony aspects to how, you know, characters are proportioned and how lighting is done and how, you know, even how doors are shaped it's like it's 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 quite funky and odd as well at times um and i think it's funny because like i said before if you have something that really theme visual theme narrative theme is decided by what you are the majority of the time you know so when you take something like twilight princess and it's kind of darker the majority of the time when you come in with something you know bright and colorful um, or something funny or something like I was I mentioned earlier about Orden Village at the beginning of the game it's very warm there's a lot of like blues in the water there's a lot of green grass and orange pumpkins and there's a lot of like firelight and things like that in the game and I just I thought that that was very like bright and warm I mean I do think it could honestly like the original version I think was maybe the saturation was pumped up a little bit for the HD version because I, I did play the HD version but it's hard without a, a direct comparison to, to know exactly how far they pushed it I think they could have pushed it a little bit more, but I quite personally, I quite like that kind of darker aesthetic to it. And I like the moments where they get to pull it back up a little bit to a brighter place. And then when they push it darker, whoa, like Arbiter's Grounds feels like a horror game when you play it, just because it's so visually, literally dark as in shadows, dark as in, you know, the the the, the tones of the colors, um, you know, and then thematically, I just think it matches really, really well, personally. Mm. And, and and the funny thing that I just remembered is I mentioned that sort of jarring transition from Wind Waker to Twilight Princess. There was a lot of fan uproar to the transition from Ocar- the Ocarina of Time and, and Majora's Mask era to what would become Wind Waker, basically. So I, I do actually remember. It's funny because like I didn't play it. I mean, I, I played it when it came out, but like a I, while after. But when I remember when it came out, because I did, I was one of those kids at the time who read like, you know, gaming magazines. Oh, yeah. And I, I do remember at the time people being like, this is a Zelda game. Like, what is this? Is like for, is it for small children? And, you know, that's, it's such an odd, um, kind of I mean it, it makes sense in that they'd set kind of a standard and then they really changed up it was a huge uh, style jump uh, to Wind Waker uh, but this is again this is one of the things that I love about Zelda as a series is that they're really willing to just absolutely throw caution to the wind and 
take some real chances with it. You know, and sometimes, and that, this is something that Nintendo does on a larger scale as well with things like the Wii U as well. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll look at something and be like, what is really novel and different and challenging and kind of weird? And like, let's let's go for that. Let's take a chance on it because we can, because we have a lot of space to move. You know, it's not like, you know, one thing is going to destroy this entire this entire IP. And I think that attitude's paid off for them, I think. Oh, yeah. uh, so, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite things is that there's so many of these kinds of Zelda games that they have a formula, but they deviate in very specific ways from that formula that gives so much to so many people. And so it's it's great to see, you know, things like Wind Waker and things like Twilight Princess. And I can go and recommend both of those to people and different people or the same people. And people love, love both. You know, it's, 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 it's incredibly cool. Mm. Um. So specifically then on that sort of darker aspect of Twilight Princess, because like we sort of talked about it and alluded to it, but like um, I mentioned this to you be before we actually started property recording, but it feels like to me um, that Twilight Princess, besides Majora, was Twilight Princess feels like a darker Zelda game than modern any modern Zelda game that's come before it or after it with the exception of Majora and maybe the upcoming Breath of the Wild sequel but um you don't quite necessarily agree with that well I mean personally I, I like I said when I when I was young and what I'm talking about now is is mm. Ocarina of Time which I think is an incredibly dark game you know I, I I think that you know I played it when I was like I mentioned before and I was like five or six I watched my mom play it and then I put into my brain the things that I could absorb at the time when I was a kid so the things that went into my brain were like ooh magic ooh reward ooh puzzle solving and then ooh Jesus scary themes and like terrifying monsters and threats and then when I got older I went back and played it again and it's so sad. I mean, a lot of people who are fans of uh, the Zelda series in general and Ocarina of Time more specifically have talked about the themes of like loss of childhood, about being like wrenched out of it by things that happen to you that are get, that are out of your control um, you know, and having to deal with that simply because you're the kind of person that maybe wants to help people or, you know, you have no choice in it. Hmm. And, you know, about time slipping away from you, friendships slipping away from you and like accepting loss. There's so much in Ocarina of Time that's, I suppose rather than dark, you'd probably call it sad or melancholic. Yeah. But there's very serious themes there. I think there's very serious themes um, in almost all the Zelda games. Um, I mentioned earlier about Wind Waker. Uh, there's some very, very serious themes in Wind Waker. And uh, I think that those those things are present in Zelda. And I think it 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 feel it just definitely adds to the quality overall. Um, because it's it's always interesting to see something that you resonate with reflected in the media that you consume. So I think it's for me, I do kind of gravitate a little bit towards things that are scarier or things that are sadder um, because I, I feel more um, connection with those kinds of pieces of media. And I feel, you know, a sense of, uh, you know, incredible happiness when that's contrasted with a positive moment. I feel like it's really powerful. Um, so, and I think, like I said, you get that in, in, in definitely more games than just Majora's Mask and Twilight Princess, which are two games that are often referenced as being very dark which they definitely are unquestionably uh, but i think you see that in a lot of a lot of zelda games hmm. um to sort of touch back on something that you said you said you said before we started and you said it a while ago here while we while we've been going that zelda is basically the sum of its parts basically it feels like a very cohesive package um in terms of not only gameplay, but it's it's themes, it's art style, um, 
thematically, like I said, themes, but thematically, gameplay-wise, and just sort of the art direction and story as well. Like it, it feels like again, like you said, as some of its parts. How do you think the Nintendo development team sort of put that together and make it stick? I mean, like, there's an how did they of, pull off that miracle? Like, like that. There's an element of that Nintendo magic, but yeah, but, but like we all know, like. It takes a lot more than just magic. They sort of pull everything together, even if you are the mighty Nintendo. For sure, for sure. Um, one thing that definitely comes to mind immediately, which is a bit like of an unfortunate thing to you know have to bring up, is that you know they do have a lot of prestige. They have a lot of resources, but more so than that, they're willing to delay their release because they're favoring the quality over the deadline that has been put forward. And that is that is obviously a massive privilege. Like, you know, most developers and most small indie companies and even some bigger companies can't necessarily afford to do that. But, you know, we've seen, I think that it's kind of a, an example of how if we loosened up on something like that, if we were able to somehow, you know, prioritize, you know, the quality of a product being brought out rather than the speed at which it's brought out, I think we would have so many more interesting cohesive experiences uh you know because like almost I, I don't know if there's one that hasn't been but there's like almost every zelda game has been delayed you know and every time i hear that there's like two voices going in my head at one time where i'm like god damn it and yes excellent brilliant i'm going to have so much of a better game when it comes out because they've given these you know artists and creatives and and, and technical wizards time to put into it and to work together on it so that it's it's a cohesive thing you know and that it's it's doing what it's supposed to be doing they can ask questions they can you know take concepts and you know they don't have to go by that kind of um oh what's the phrase i'm thinking of uh, they don't have to. Go, they don't have to. You know, follow that sunk cost fallacy of like we put X amount of time into this one mechanic. We better keep it. They'll go. No, it's not fun. Get rid of it. You know, we can. We have the time because we're Nintendo and we have these resources. We have the time to spend an extra month, two months on reworking this and getting it in possibly. You know, so I think that that definitely benefits it for sure. Um, I also think that they have clearly based on the the you know the teams the teams that have worked on these projects a very clear vision for the kinds of players that they're making something for and the level of difficulty and the um sort of tone that they're shooting for with various different cutscenes segments gameplay mixed with story uh, so I imagine there's a great level of of collaboration and and uh, and communication within their offices I would say Mm. Uh, but at the same time and i'm going to use a different example here you mentioned how nintendo tends to sort of delay all these games like in the series like like for example we were expecting breath of the wild to come out for example in 2016 yeah and, and they pushed it to 2017 back at the end not, was it at the end of 2015 I can't yeah, mind. but it was, something, it, was something, it was something like that. But like it was, uh, yeah, it was a yeah. very long, yeah, for sure. And I would imagine, if not for the pandemic, we probably there was there. I would still say we would, Breath of the Wild two would have definitely have come out in twenty twenty two. But at least without the pandemic, you could maybe have argued a case that they could have put it out for this year anyway. Um, <laughs> but to give a different example, there's a double edged sword to sort of delaying everything maybe and like feel free to sort of um 
shoot my head off here, basically, uh, for for using this example in, in comparison to what Nintendo has done with the series with Zelda. Um, for the better part of, I want to say near enough all the games, but certainly, especially with their top tier releases over the past 10, 15 years, like every game from Rockstar has been delayed at least once, at least once. Like Grand Theft Auto 4 was meant to come out in October of 07, got pushed like a little later after its reveal in 06 to 08. Max Payne 2 was meant to come out in 09, came out in 2012. LA Noir was announced in 2005. Didn't come out until 2010. Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah, and like that's some delay. Yeah. Like, 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 there's so many examples. Like Grand Theft Auto Five, like when it was announced in 2011, like um, that was meant to come out in the spring of 2013. Came out yeah. September 2013. Um, and then Red Dead Redemption, uh, 2017. Nope. Uh, uh, late 2017. Nope. Spring 2018. Nope. Came out in the fall of 2018. And yeah. that was when the sort of brouhaha kicked off about yeah. Punch uh, uh, at Rockstar. And even now, um, the expanded and enhanced edition of Grand Theft Auto V, a game that has been out for nearly 10 years at this point, revealed 10 years ago, as of about a month ago, uh, for the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 and PC. And it's been released over several generations. And that version has been delayed. That version yeah. has been delayed. So the fact that a sort of remaster for a third generation release of a game gets delayed, that sort of tells you a lot. But I think the point I'm trying to make is there may be a double-edged sword to sort of delay a game. Oh, but- I mean, for, for sure, one qualifier that I will give to that is that, you know, delaying a game is not like a magic wand that you can wave that will make a game oh, yeah. good, you know? But for sure, I would say that generally speaking, I do lean towards like happiness when i hear a game is delayed if a game is delayed it's not delayed for like no reason you know it's definitely delayed because the people who are i mean and oftentimes delaying a game is not profitable or positive for you know big investors and big companies you know it's not something that they want to hear if they can push it out broken they'll push it out broken you know so um you know uh, uh, not all the time but uh, you know a decent amount of the time if they can they will so that's what you know brings them in profits so I think that generally speaking, when games are delayed, it's really just giving developers more time uh, to get things done. And I think if that's directed in a way that reduces crunch, it's almost always better. Mm. Um, cause, and because another thing is you're right in that, like, you know, if they're just extending the amount of time that developers are doing crunch for, I just don't think that's sustainable. I mean, generally speaking, uh, I think it's safe to say the majority of the people in the industry are anti-crunch. There's very few people, usually big company heads that are pro the concept of crunch at all. I mean, like, you know, I myself know it's it's not sustainable. It's not a sustainable mm-hmm. practice for developers. And it's usually an indicator of poor project planning, in my opinion, as well. You know, if you can if you are planning a project and part of it is unpaid, you know, overworking by people that really don't have much of an option of saying no, I mean that's that's terrifying, you know. So you know, personally, like I said, I, I generally kind of breathe a sigh of relief when I hear a game is being delayed. Um, but like it doesn't, it's not a magic wand. It doesn't solve all the problems of, of development. So it doesn't fix things all the time. Um, and it, it it is difficult. Uh, one thing I will say about, again, about remasters as well is that I've been working over the past year on a remaster. And I think there's a little bit of an un- un- underestimation of the work involved in a remaster as well. And if you have, you know, possibly 
large company heads or investors or stockholders, you know, making suggestions uh, to developers about what should or can be done within the time frame, who have maybe very little, um, you know, knowledge about what is necessarily involved in the in the process, that can also delay things massively as well. So, I mean, maybe one way of solving this, and this is not again not a magic wand either, is maybe some more transparency between developers and and fans and players, you know, to say like at what stages that a process might be in or reasons why they're delaying. Again, that's not going to work for every project for obvious reasons, but. Um, you know, uh, but generally speaking, I'm I'm sort of I'm I'm pro delaying if it's possible. It usually is a good indication of you know we're able to put some more time and and love and effort into this, mm. uh, which 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 I do like to see generally. Mm. Just to correct myself so very slightly, I said LA Noir came out in 2010. It's actually 2011, so it was actually a six-year gap. <laughs> it's like a one year and, longer, and, and, and it's really so it was a year longer, and that was when the whole team Bondi brouhaha kicked off as well. So yeah. Yeah, basically, I think what we're trying to say is games development is very hard. It's super hard. Oh, my God. I've never <laughs> done it, and I fucking know how hard it is. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, so the Wii U remaster, like, how did you find that? Did you actually play it? I did. I played it. I played it right through. I played it. I... I, I, I annoyed every single one of my friends when it came out and I was so excited and people were like why are you excited for Charlie Princess I'm like have you met me <laughs> so I played through it I played through it like the weekend it came out I like I like cancelled things <laughs> I am like, playing Twilight Princess um no I, I I did I played through it I I I liked it I again it was they tweaked they brought up the saturation a little bit which is like you know I'm not going to complain about that I think it was probably a good call um one thing I I really despised in the remake, which is funny uh, thing to, to to say, but like they put in these like meverse or like I can't remember what their what their social media thing was or their like platform social media thing. I think it was meverse. It could have it been like weverse or something. And they put in these like stamps in chests in the game that you get, um, which is infuriating. Like if you're someone playing Zelda. Uh, you've done all this work to get to this chest you open it you're like yes I'm going to get something amazing even like you know 20 rupees I'd be happy with but you open it and it's like you've got this totally out of universe meverse stamp it's awful I felt so like I'm not going to use that it was so painful to get it's such a weird way you pulled me right out of this like beautiful narrative I put myself in where I'm the hero of time you know, and it's like, no, no, suddenly I'm collecting meverse stamps it didn't work at all I don't think um but I think apart from that, there wasn't like many huge changes. There was another section put into the game, but I don't, I don't remember it that well. Um, it just wasn't the Cave of Ordeals. I think the Cave of Ordeals was in the original, unless I'm, unless I'm forgetting something. But um, yeah, no, I, I mean, overall, it was, it was pretty good. I, I kind of liked it. I missed the, the motion controls, <laughs> which were absent from the Wii U version, or at least in the version I played with the, I played with the, um, the, the big gamepad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so, yeah. Um, I did miss. Did you get the amiibo that has the sort of dungeon in it? Of course, I did. Yeah. (laughs) But I I got that amiibo because I wanted the amiibo. I got the amiibo because I wanted the figurine. Okay, fair enough. I I wanted a wolf mid. I wanted a midna figurine really badly. I do have like a a not insignificant Zelda um, collection uh, in my house. I'm I'm a well well known Zelda fan, and uh, my my partner actually. 
in one of the like uh, earlier gifts earlier in our relationship uh, carved a master sword for me out of wood and painted it and like presented it to me because he closed my eyes on my eyes and he's holding me out this and it was huge it was like like not my size but you know slightly smaller than me and it's like unbelievable like it's one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen it's hanging on my at, at the risk uh, of being very slightly inappropriate did you ask him to marry him right then <laughs> <laughs> i should have i should have i'm actually marrying him very soon but uh yeah no it was uh it was it was it was amazing and he's actually made me a couple of things since then because he's like a very talented um like craftsman and he's made uh, and that's not his trade he's actually an economist by trade uh but his hobby Lock, is that makes it even more impressive <laughs> Yeah, he's a very, very talented person. Uh, and he actually also made me a, a chest from Skyward Sword, which actually holds all my Zelda guidebooks. I'm really, I mean, even on this podcast, I'm outing myself as a nerd now. If that's even like, it's one level even Alan, higher. We're a bunch of nerds on this show. <laughs> I don't know what gave you the impression that we're not. <laughs> okay and then and then as well i i also have a uh that he also also that he made me the um goddess harp from skyward sword as well mm. wow yeah Fuck. and that's i i've i've a lot of other stuff as well i have a bit of a zelda problem i should probably stop buying zelda merch at this point fuck if you were marrying him, I'd fucking marry him and i'm not even a big massive <laughs> zelda fan i'd just be impressed at how <laughs> At an economist, just basically being able to craft things like that. <laughs> he also, at the risk of making him sound even better, he also makes games in his spare time as well. So he's sort of a hobby game developer as well. <laughs> um. So, what else do you like about Twilight Princess that we've not really got into tonight? God. Um. Yeah, I talked about visuals. I One thing I really love, and this is kind of a, it's something that's not noticed as often, I think, in games, and I think is super underrated aspect of game design in general, is the sound effects. I think that a lot of people talk about Twilight Princess. I mean, people that don't like really overtly, you know, critique it, people who like Twilight Princess in general, a lot of people bring up this, like the, the satisfying feel of playing the game. And I think a huge part of that is um, the sound effects that are put into the game like there's actually there's a, a a bit of a short story that one of my lecturers when I was in college told me about a, a game that they were working on that they had a weapon in the game that gamers would message in and complain about and they said it's not strong enough it's not strong enough it's not a good gun it doesn't do very much damage and my lecturer said oh you know what maybe change the sound effects and see if they come back and they're and they they, they change that effect to sound a little bit more crunchy or a little bit bigger, a bit louder, a bit more shotgunny. And people came back and said, "Oh my god, this does so much damage now! It's amazing!" And they changed nothing about how the game, how the gun functioned at all. Um, and I think so. I think sound effects have a really like heavy imp impression on how we feel the gameplay. So, like game feel wise. I think sound effects matter hugely. And I think in in in, in Breath of the Wild, or Breath of the Wild, I mean, in Breath of the Wild, that's also true. They have an amazing work on sound effects in, in Breath of the Wild. Uh, but in Twilight Princess, they feel very impactful. There's a lot of like, you know, the movement feels amazing. The, the sounds of traversing something, the wolf sounds that Link makes, make everything feel like it's kind of an effort. And he's, but he, and he's vicious. Like when he attacks, he makes this like snarling noise. And then Midna's speech is like, you know, garbled English backwards. And she sounds very otherworldly in the context of the game. Um, so it's one thing, one really small thing that I that I think a lot of people don't necessarily notice that is, you know, a, a part of it that I really love. And ag again, it does come up in many Zelda games. Like the sound work is unbelievable on these games. Hmm. Um, 
Actually, there's another aspect of the, the Twilight Princess that, that you sort of briefly touched on, but I'm sort of surprised at myself that I didn't actually bother to ask, and that is the soundtrack. I, I, yeah. I don't think we got to talk about that in detail. We talked a little bit, so I mentioned some 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 yeah. some kind of tunes from it that I really love, mm. um, but I think tonally it's unbelievable. I think it's unparalleled. It's a little sad to me that it's a MIDI sort of synthy soundtrack. Um, I would love it like a full, you know, the, the full orchestral sound is unbelievable. Like Breath of the Wild, that's one thing about it that's just, I, I think... I think it's fair to say it's unparalleled. Like the, the music in that game is unbelievable. My ringtone actually, when someone calls me, is the Guardian Alert music from um, from Breath of the Wild. Uh, be, just because that's how I feel when I get a phone call because I'm an anxious person. So when that music plays, other people go, why do you have such an ang- anxious, horrible sound effect when your phone rings? I, can, I said, well, that's I exactly how I feel. It. I can picture it. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it, but it's, it's amazing. But like in, in Twilight Princess, I think the music is, again, it nails that kind of, it's melancholic, it's beautiful, it's multi-layered. I listen to it all the time. I fully, If you haven't played Twilight Princess, you don't necessarily have to to get this small piece of why I think it's really beautiful. You can go on Spotify, I think. I'm not sure actually, is Nintendo Music on Spotify? They might have had an issue with that. But you can go on YouTube. You can you can look up the, the soundtrack. I don't even it's, know if you can go on YouTube. Fucking yeah, Nintendo's, actually, that's probably worse. <laughs> actually, Nintendo's sort of gone... Haywire with they have on, with the copyright stuff yeah and it's pretty sad actually one of the things i was going to mention as a, a negative for twilight princess if you were to ask me my negatives which, uh, which i've already mentioned to, actually so what, yeah. did you have? why didn't what didn't you like about it like it it, it, it this is more of a, a, a broader thing but i think this is really really a huge negative which is like i want to sit on this podcast now and i want to say to people go play twilight princess that's what i want to be able to say to people and then people will say to me cool, how do I, like, do I get on Switch? It's like, no, you're going to have to dig out a Wii U and get a HD copy, which is already crazy, or you can go and get, get the Wii, dig out your Wii from your attic or something, or try to buy one secondhand and get the copy, if you can find it, good luck for that, to play it. And that is so sad. I mean, this is really more of a broader issue in games when it comes to uh, archiving, you know, games. We've lost a lot of games with the, with the fl- loss of Flash, you know, and it's just, there's... this is something I kind of I feel quite passionate about I don't know to be honest a real catch-all solution to this it's just so sad there's so many games that you can now own the experience by going on YouTube and watching people's playthroughs and that's great that we have that it's great that we have something but it it is quite sad I'd love to be able to tell people you know and and it's it's great to see you know something like Skyward Sword come out in HD on the Switch I'd love to see you know Nintendo continually I mean it sounds like a lazy thing but like I actually would love to see them just keep releasing games that they've made that are excellent and people loved because like I want to be able to access them you know I don't want to lose lose access to them but there's a bigger question I think to be asked around digital art formats and um, you know cre- cultural products and how, how we archive them and how we save them for, for future generations and and uh, and future game designers because if we if we keep losing these experiences less and less designers are going to play them they're going to learn the lessons less often they're going to keep reinventing the wheel as it were you know and it'll be hard for you know our medium to to progress over time so I really do hope that we come up with some kind of solution there and um, I know there's some people who are working on like larger projects to kind of come up with a solution for archiving games but yeah that's that's one way I mean that's more of a like overall game uh, industry issue but it, it is a genuine problem I have because I want to recommend Twilight Princess to people it's very hard um yeah so like that's one of my bigger problems uh, there's also another one that pe- people do mention 
uh, and I see it, and I kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, which is some people describe Twilight Princess as kind of empty. Um, I've actually also seen some people, very, very few, not as many people, but some people say this about Breath of the Wild as well, where they said there's quite a lot of like empty space between things happening. You can feel them placed within the empty space that's been put there. Um, I think that that's kind of a sort of something I don't feel like is a, a, a negative or a positive. Um, it's something that's sort of interesting. I think it could have maybe done with some more side quests. I still really like that. It's one of the things I like about um, uh, about uh, Skyward Sword is it has re some really, really nice uh, side quests in there, even if a lot of them are kind of um, sort of pigeonholed in, you know, Skyloft, um, you know, as it were. But yeah, I, I, I feel like it, it feels a little bit empty at points. I mean, honestly, it's funny, but maybe that kind of reflects the kind of overall theme of that sort of isolation and loneliness and sadness that I mentioned before in Twilight Princess. Mm. But uh, yeah, I yeah, I, I would like to see what a version of Twilight Princess might look like with more things in it, specifically in like Hyrule Field, which feels a little empty to me. Mm. For what's worth, um, when we're recording this, we're recording this at the end of November 2021, and it's actually two weeks before the Game Awards. So I'm just going to say, and there are suggestions that Twilight Princess and Wind Waker HD are still on for the Switch. So I'm just saying, Game Awards, maybe. I, I, I would like to be able to say that Twilight Princess has exactly zero negatives. Please, Nintendo, if you're listening to this podcast, I would very much like Twilight Princess on my Switch so I don't have to dig my Wii U out of the attic. Now that I've talked about Twilight Princess as much, I absolutely have to play it. I would like to not have to dig through my attic stuff to get to my Wii U to play it. Uh, please release it on the Switch. Like, basically Zelda 3D All-Stars. Like That would Ocar actually o Ocarina 3D. legitimately make my year. Ocarina 3D, Majora 3D, Ooh, yes. Wind Waker HD. Oh, can and, you imagine? Uh, and Twilight Princess HD on top of the recent Skyward Sword uh, HD. I would have no money. <laughs> I would pay any amount of money. <laughs> Healy, you know what to do, Jeffrey. <laughs> Come on, Jeffrey, you can do it. Paved the way, put your back into it. Put your back into it. <laughs> That's the second time I've referenced Inside this season. It'll be the first time people will hear it but it'll be the second time I'll have referenced it in terms of recording <laughs> order anyway. Um, <laughs> um, what would you change from a design perspective then from Twilight Princess? From a design perspective, if I had if I had ultimate control over Twilight Princess, what if would I change? If you were EJ hmm. Newman, what would you do? I was EJ Newman, what would I change? I, I, I do feel one of the things that's brought up an awful lot as a, as a negative is that collection of the tears which you do in wolf form you run around kind of areas that you're familiar with and you look for bugs and you kill them and you collect these tears it's a very narratively it's a very important task for 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 link to complete in the in the story of the game it's a little lacking i don't know what i would put in to like solve this you know what they do it actually kind of excellently they have this almost this version of this in skyward sword and it's actually one of my favorite parts of skyward sword i can't remember what they call it they might also call it collecting tears uh, i'm not sure uh, i don't know if you've played uh, skyward sword enough to have seen this but there's basically parts in it where you're in a trial and you start inside this circle at the center of a familiar area and once you leave the circle various like robotic you know sentient statues around the area that are huge and slow moving actually very fast moving and aggressive sort of 
run at you to kill you and they will kill you instantly in one hit and the idea is that if you pick up these these tears sort of you get a few seconds or some some time to move between this tier and the next tier without setting these things off and when they get set off they set off this horrifying music that plays that's essentially you are immediately being chased you should be terrified music um and it's like one of my favorite parts of skyward sword it's absolutely terrifying uh it's it's interesting they give this visual sweep where they kind of show you where these tears are but there's also an element of like you know uh hunting for them and and, and doing kind of a bit of detective work and there's only one permanent safe spot on the map so that's very much kind of brings across that childhood feeling of like you know um running between spots and like having to freeze suddenly and that kind of like you know uh fear thing and so it, that was a really interesting way of doing it and i feel like it's quite inspired by the tear collection but if you have that in Twilight, which you do in Twilight Princess with no kind of pressure around doing that, it feels a little bit fetch questy or like, you know, a kind of filler task, I suppose. And I don't hate it because I like the environments in Twilight Princess. And so I just like controlling it. It feels great to control the game, in, in my opinion. Uh, so, you know, it's not a, a, as huge a negative for me, but I've seen it essentially done well or done better. So if they ported that in literally across from one game to the other, I think it would improve the game overall um, or something, you know, some, some kind of uh, a twist on that would be good, I think. So top three Zelda games, what would they be? Obviously Twilight Princess at the Oof. top and I would, at the risk of putting words in your mouth, I would probably guess Ocarina second. And what would you guess third? Do you have a third guess for me? Wind Waker. Okay, you're very close. So Twilight Princess is first, obviously. Uh, Ocarina of Time is, in fact, second. But my third um, is uh, Skyward Sword. Because mm. I like to piss off the most amount of people as I can at a time. I do. I love Skyward Sword. I think Skyward Sword is absolutely... It's beautiful. It's uh, fantastic. The design is wonderful. Um. I just mentioned, like I've, I, I, like I think three times while we've been talking about Twilight Princess, I've mentioned things about the Skyward Sword that I love. Uh, there's just so many like interesting uh, design decisions in in, in Skyward Sword. Uh, I fully agree with almost all of the criticisms I've seen of it. I just happen to love it, like regardless of those issues. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> mentions go for it do you have at least yeah. half a dozen i have so many i have i so i i heard about you you messed me about about coming on on the podcast and i had to sit down and decide my favorite game which is already terrifying to me because i'm one of those people who's like i have a collection of games that i truly love and i even when i ask people like oh what's your favorite game i'm like oh no pressure you don't have to pick one i'm just trying to get an idea you know i'm i i because i think it, it does shift and change for people a lot but i have so many games that i love so much it's such a wonderful medium um, so yeah, I, I made it made a way too long of a list and then was told by my partner, that's not going to work. This is like not a seven hour long podcast. You're going to have to cut it down. So I, I have it down to four 
like ones that I was actually considering actually saying were my favorite game uh you know in sort of uh, in my top top five as it would uh, as you would uh so one of them uh being uh, I mentioned this a little bit earlier which is Silent Hill 2 uh, which is what I get, a lot of people might guess would be my favorite game. Uh, and has I have called it my favorite game at different points in the past. Um, so for similar reasons, <laughs> it's like I've also never really, uh, outside of this, drawn comparison between <laughs> Zelda games and, and, and Silent Hill 2. But uh, yeah, I did draw those comparisons earlier. And I, I kind of stand by a lot of the comparisons that I made about that kind of, you know, sort of sadness, sort of darkness, and that sort of uncanny thing as well. Um, just to point, put it out there, we are, we've already had a Silent Hill episode from season three, and I'm happy to have Silent Hill to come back at some point. Like if anyone wants to come on and talk about Silent Hill two, um, I'll encourage it. I'll happily embrace it. But for what it's worth, come to me with Silent Hill three. I'll I'll have you with arms wide open, <laughs> just 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 literally, so I can spend about. Well, I'd have to assume that episode is going to be about 90 minutes long. I'll yeah. happily embrace you for just so for that, for about 45 of those 90 minutes. We can just talk about the intro and the opening song <laughs> to the game. Yeah, absolutely. I, no, I totally, totally get it. Silent Hill 3 is absolutely an excellent game. It's it's fantastic. I, I, I do think that one of the reasons that people do talk about Silent Hill 2 a lot as, as, as their favorite Silent Hill game is because I think it, it kind of stands on its own. And mm. I think that is appealing to people. It's one of the things that probably puts some people off of playing Zelda games. It's because like if I was someone who'd never played a Zelda game and I saw it, I would I would think, oh, there's probably like 17 books and like three mini game things and like a you know a conference talk that I have to watch before I understand what's going on in this game like and I do under I do fully sympathize with people who come into something like that and they feel sort of you know put out by it so I do think that's part of why people list it because I think Silent Hill 3 is excellent it's such an amazingly excellent game it's got like a, a lot of what I love about Silent Hill 2 is in Silent Hill 3 you know it just has that like one step one level of complexity higher which is like including more lore and more kind of world building and more kind of you know character backstory and connection to previous games and things like that that i think silent hill 2 doesn't 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 um express as much hmm. um what's next for me uh I, another one that i love is ace attorney I love Ace Attorney so much. Hard tone change again between. That, 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 it's like Zelda, darn tone change. Yeah, it's like that's what I, I kind of am. This weird mixture of like kind of goofy silliness and like this incredible dark darkness, and that's kind of a a good kind of combo for me. If something does both those things, I really like it. So that's that's one of the reasons I love Ace Attorney is you take like the darkest subject matter, you know, the most kind of grim dark context you can imagine. It's like a police procedural. Uh, with lots of murder uh, and um, crime, and then you just make it the goofiest, most ridiculous thing you can possibly imagine. Um, but they still have like a sort of <laughs> a level of like goofy, yes, but sincere also kind of you know content and context to it, which I which I really love. But I love I love the character designs. The music is obviously like iconic. Uh, I think the writing is hilarious. They actually did an excellent job. Uh, one thing I'd like to throw out there as well is an excellent job on the. Um, localization on Ace Attorney, which must have been a nightmare. I can't imagine because there's so many like contextual cultural jokes in that game. Um, and it's all, it's like 100% 
almost written written content. So it's it's a particularly uh, impressive thing to see. But I recently I've, I've said that as well. I mean, I do love it. I played it so often on you know my my very second console that I owned, which was a DS. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I played it so often. Um, but I also recently replayed the trilogy, which came out, which is remastered. Uh, which, if anyone listening hasn't played it, you should definitely go play it. It's it's, it's an excellent series. Um, but yeah, I just I just I love the satisfying reveals in that game. I love the story. I love the characters. It's just great. It's such great. It's a great fun game to play. Have you played the uh, Great Ace Attorney yet? Yeah, yeah. That's I'm, I'm, so Ace Attorney. Ace Attorney. No, no, just... no the, the the newer one that just came out. Um... Yeah, yeah. I actually haven't yet. Oh. I'm super excited too. I've actually, I, I, I haven't actually been playing. Uh, this is interesting, actually. Uh, I could stick an honorable mention here too, uh, but um, I haven't actually been playing as many digital games in the last while, just because I've been, I've been kind of, I've been working a lot and then doing a lot of like volunteer stuff and, and other things. Been very busy, but what I have been doing is because I've been locked in my home with my family. I've been playing a lot of board games, so. Uh, I love board games and uh, it's one of the questions that I asked, you know, yourself uh, before I came on was like, is it a digital game or do we consider board games? Because that's going to significantly increase my my uh, my, my um, options of what I'm talking about. Uh, but yeah, so I, any uh, like sort of recently released stuff I've had a little bit trouble getting to. But uh, mm. but um, yes, I'm very excited to play play the newest uh, Ace Attorney. It's going to be it's going to be a good time. Um, I hit you next? another one. Uh, what's the what's the <laughs> bring it on? Okay, another one is uh, Telltale's The Walking Dead, uh, specifically season one, I would single out as like one yeah. of my favorite games of all time. It's like, it's amazing. I, I really think it's, I actually think it's kind of underrated, which is funny because it was huge when it came out, but I really do feel like it's one of my favorite games. The characters are unforgettable. The pacing is wonderful. Um, the gameplay is a really cool concept. The writing's really strong. Every episode presents a different setting and a different problem to deal with. Uh, and, you know, I, I said this before, you know, I said, like, I talked to my partner about this and I said, like, you know, can I reasonably not include in my honorable mentions a game which I fully cried at at the end? You know, like, am I, am I allowed to do that to not include that? So, you know, I don't think many people cry to video games very often. But, um, yeah, it really, it kind of, it, it, it broke a part of me. My top three game. games I've cried to. Like, uh, there's at least, let me think off the top of my head. There is at least... Four, five. There's at least five, six games in my top ten. I've cried to. So people do cry oh. video games. See, video games are amazing. I think, yeah, this is like an argument for them being just a wonderful cultural product, and also another argument for game developers hating human beings. But, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> but games are beautiful, amazing medium, and they just like really, really touch people. And so, like, yeah, Walking Dead, uh, you know, broke a part of me that I'll never get back. But it's such a, it's beautiful storytelling. You can feel you know someone's real emotionally true story going into something like that which i think uh, mm. is is amazing to see in in any medium as a story that's that's really emotionally sincere and it's it's yeah it's an it's an excellent game i feel i should probably point out like i played all of season one fucking loved it and i think for me i i, I loved season one i really i played it start to finish broke me in huge ways like i think i was it's either episode three or episode four where it just really fucking rips at you it's so it with, just went it fully, went there. yeah it, it fully, went there it went there like exactly it's like there are moments and it's in one of those episodes anyway where it just like completely goes haha 
fuck your feelings. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> it's just like, oh my god, I can't hand I can't handle this. And then it, Dan, yeah. Dan. Yeah. Yeah, I feel you, man. It's 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 a lot. Um but it's it's the and this is this is I be I think a big reason why I do consider it one of my favorite games is it is telling a story about something um difficult that happens to most people at some point. Hmm. Um thematically speaking. Uh, and that sort of story storytelling about the human experience uh, through something that honestly sounds really silly. It sounds silly to say, you know, oh, the, the you know, the Walking Dead, the game did this, but mm. the developers didn't, the writers did an unbelievable job at presenting something uh, that was very, really impactful, mm. I think. Um, the, the reason I also say that is because I actually have not played anything beyond season one. Actually, no, that's slightly like I've not played anything beyond episode one of season two. But beyond mm. that, I've not played anything from The Walking Dead. Like, I, I have an understanding of one or two things that have happened since then. But like beyond that, I've not played it. And I, I don't know if yeah. that's and I don't know if that's a lack of interest or something else. But I, I feel like I should go back at some point and actually pause it all off. Um, I, I like especially considering now when I first played it, it was on Xbox 360. Now I've come out onto newer machines since then. I, I just feel like maybe I should probably give uh, just talking about it, I should probably go back and revisit these games again because, like, tell 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 back in that sort of 2012, 2014, 2015 period, like they were on it, they were really yeah. on it, like Walking Dead. Um, Wolf Among Us Wolf, was Wolf Among also Us. fantastic. Yeah, uh, Tales from the Borderlands, and I'm not even the biggest yeah. Borderlands fan, but Tales from the Borderlands was fantastic. Like that period, that three year period with Walking Dead, Wolf Among Us, Borderlands, and a few other things, but especially those three, Telltale were really on in that period. So absolutely, yeah. And I think that the season one of The Walking Dead is like kind of the golden example of that, in my opinion. I think it, I think it does some stuff wrong at different points. Um, I think you could have, you know, it, it, it's kind of, to a, it, to an extent, it's sort of niche. You know, you're not going to appeal to every person who plays video games with a format like that. I think the format is really the thing that people mention sometimes as being sort of an issue. I think it's more of just, it's built for a certain type of player. And mm. you either like that kind of format or you don't for gameplay. And you like that kind of, you know, gameplay mechanic or you don't, that kind of loop. Um, but yeah, I think it's absolutely a sort of a, a golden shining example of interesting characters interesting presentation interesting content and fabulous execution mm. and especially as well like we also mentioned uh, i also mentioned how it uh, that sort of three-year period telltale had these games coming out like walk dead wolf among us borderlands stuff like that there that was also sort of when the advent of episode gaming sort of became a thing because was not yeah, just walking, yeah there was not just walking dead there was life is strange as well yeah that's true and there's like yeah there was a kind of a stream at that point of, of of episodic games. I mean, it's still kind of happening. You still get the odd episodic narrative game coming out. Um, I do think that's a really interesting format. I think it might even solve the sort of release problem that we were talking about earlier, the sort of pacing releases. Um, and it's it's very interesting. But yeah, there was definitely a sort of a, a golden era of that where a lot of different places were trying uh, things around that kind of you know release format. And it, and it worked very well for a lot of narrative storytelling in games. Mm. But again, they sort of bring up that sort of double-edged sword. 
Um, while the episodic format may solve some issues, like it may not solve others, like especially in regards to the sort of release of them. Because I remember especially Borderlands, like the releasing, like I think it was something like from episode three onwards, like the the release period was sort of schematic and sort of not even schematic, uh, scatterbrain and just sort yeah. of all over the place. Whereas at least Life is Strange, at least for the first game anyway, like they were coming out every three months or so, with the exception of the last episode, which took a bit longer, which was fair enough. Yeah. Um, and then you got things like Kentucky Route Zero, which took an age to sort of get over the line. And even now, um, Delta Rune is coming out in chapters, but like yeah. that's those chapters are taking up years at a time. Yeah. So who knows when we'll get the full story for that? So that there's yeah. there's another double sort of double edged uh sort of aspect it. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Uh yeah, but I I, I do like the episodic format. And especially oh, yeah. and this is another thing. This is another thing. Like as a player, like this is again another kind of possibly unpopular opinion. Where's the? I want the shorter games. I I really like short games. I think there's yeah. a lot of like a hundred plus hour games, which I also love. Like I said, I'm replaying The Witcher Three right now, yeah. uh, you know, and I love those kinds of games, uh, those kind of almost like hobby games. Um, but I really, really wouldn't mind having that feeling of completing an experience or completing a story or completing a, 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 you know an, an environment or finishing something in a shorter period of time. I think a lot of people have very little time to play games nowadays. I think there's an audience for shorter game experiences, in my opinion. And I'd like to see more, more like games you can play in a day, in a weekend, you know, stuff that's like 20 hours or less. I'd love to, I'd love to see some more, more, more projects like that. And I do hope we get to see that in the future. I agree. But also, it's worth bearing in mind, I basically burned through Mass Effect 3 in the weekend it came out. <laughs> and that's meant to be a 40-hour PG, and I burned through that Friday, Friday, late Sunday, early Monday morning. So That's fair. I could probably play through Twilight Princess in a, in a, in a day. I wouldn't sleep, but I would... <laughs> I, I suppose bar- it depends on what, how, much, how many hours you play in a day. <laughs> I barely slept that weekend Mass Effect 3 came out. Actually, this also happened with Mass Effect 2 as well, but I digress. I digress. Um, your last honorable mention. Last honorable mention. Uh, I got. I got. I have to go with it again. A kind of a, a strange one, but I don't know if you know another code to memories. Have you heard of this one? Oh, uh, it's kind oh, of a. Oh, it rings a bell. It rings a bell. Yeah. It's a Wii game. It is a DS game. It was the sequel. Oh. Was a was a Wii game. Oh. Uh, yeah, and it was out on the on the original version of the DS when it came out. And oh, I love this game. It's kind of a, it's it's sort of an odd one. I love it so much. It's it's basically. Uh, basically an exploration puzzle game. Uh, mm. You play as this uh, sort of young kid called Ashley who, uh, you know, in video game fashion, returns to an island uh, after receiving a, a letter from her, her her supposedly deceased father telling her that, that he's on the island and he's waiting for her. So she returns oh, very back. Very Scientology-esque. Kind of, uh, definitely. And, and it was definitely praised at the time. Like some people said, you know, it was, it was, it was this kind of very dark, unique... Uh, sort of atmospheric um, it, it, sort of gameplay. It was very like tonally sort of creepier and darker, but it was intended for a younger audience. Like I don't, I'm not saying kids, but like say young adult sort of audiences. Um, but it was really unique and odd. It, it had a lot of like kind of, you, you traversed everything top down uh, and then you had these little, like zoom in section sort of misty, uh, like, mi- like mist, uh, where you would do these kind of puzzles in this kind of sort of half 3D environment. Uh, and the whole time you're trying to solve this mystery of what's happening, you meet up with another child who's a ghost child, which that story gets very dark very quickly. 
And, you know, you're trying to solve the mystery of what happened to him, who he is, what his memories are, and also yours, uh, as you have this very distinct memory as a child of like this, this terrible thing happening and you hiding, you know, in your house while this, this thing happened with your parents and this, you know, it's, it's a big mystery. And you, and you traverse this, like essentially this mansion on this abandoned island. It's very creepy and interesting. And while you do it, you're doing all these puzzles. And a lot of the puzzles are really, really interesting. So I'll give you like one really small example, which was I was playing and there's a puzzle where you have this picture on the bottom screen of, of, of the DS and there's like a, you know, this kind of imprint thing on the top. And you're like, I'm tapping things and I'm moving things around buttons and I'm leaving and coming back and leaving, coming back. And I'm trying to get items. I'm like, I have no idea what to do. And eventually I get really, really frustrated as a kid. I slam the thing shut and I put it down and I go about my business. I come back. And when I open it, I realize that it's, it does the little noise. Like you solved this puzzle. I'm like, wait a second. It's like, it was a stamp. The top bit was a stamp and you had to like close it and open it in order to, to solve the puzzle. And there's just a lot of like little moments in that that are really outside the box kind of puzzle solving moments. Mm. And and again, it has this mixture of like it's set in the modern day, but you're retreat, you know, going back to this old castle that's sort of half like scientist uh, like headquarters base transformed from an older manor where half of it has never even been looked at. And it's like, you know, it, it, it's this beautiful kind of like combination of worlds, sort of almost time shifting, multiple characters, not unlike. Twilight Princess. Um, oh. <laughs> there's, there's through lines through everything that I like that it's like a little bit dark. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's got like sort of very sort of sympathetic characters. It's got an emotional sincerity. There's definitely puzzles involved. <laughs> you know, a strong base of storytelling, uh, a strong formula, and amazing atmosphere and tone. And if if it has all those things, I'm I'm just I'm I'm down. You know. Mm. Yeah. Um. Feels like as well uh, the way you were describing it, like it feels like there's elements of breaking the fourth wall and as well. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I think sometimes that stuff is 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 excellent and really interesting, and sometimes it just doesn't work. Like in Twilight Princess, when you know you have the stamps, sometimes it just breaks the fourth wall so much that you're just pulled entirely out of the atmosphere that you're in, and it just kind of spoils it. It's a very thin line you have to walk with stuff like that, but I think when it works, it works incredibly well. Hmm. Uh, okay, so. Top three games ever. What would they be? Obviously, Twilight Princess top. Second or third, what would they be? Twilight Princess has to be top. Silent Hill 2 has got to be second. Third is tough. Third is tough. Um, God, that's really difficult. I mean, I probably have to be sort of predictable and probably say Ocarina of Time. Because it was a bit too formative, and it's 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 like I'm not you know by saying Twilight Princess is my favorite, I'm not saying Ocarina of Time is not one of the best games ever made, you know, and it is it obviously is, mm. um, and I think it's beautiful, it's melancholic, it's fun as hell, it's you know memorable, it's just wonderful. It's an excellent example of almost almost perfect game design. <laughs> Find me on Twitter at ephemerellum. That's 
E-P-H-E-M-E-R-E-L-L-E-N. I think I have the world record for E's and a handle with that, by the way. Uh, yeah, I'm also one half of a game company based in uh, based in Dublin slash Cork, and it's called Planchet Games. We make creepy, magical games for creepy, magical people. Uh, and one of our games is released on Steam right now. It's called So May It Be. It's a witch dating simulator, and you can go check that out. It's available right now. Uh, I also work uh, for an indie game dev company out of Dublin called Gambrinus. And uh, they have two games out right now. I was the lead writer on the game card Apocalypse, which is an RPG about being a 90s kid where you play a collectible card game battling against your friends in school. And uh, I was a writer and a programmer on the very recently released uh, remaster of uh, Guild of Dungeoneering Ultimate Edition, which is uh, recently released on Steam, which you can go and check out now. Thanks for listening to My Favourite Game, a podcast by PlayDiaries.com where people from the games industry come on to talk of their favourite game. If you want to listen to future episodes of My Favourite Game, as well as press play before they go live publicly on PlayDiaries and other podcast platforms, please consider becoming a $2 tier podcast early access patron to your Patreon at patreon.com slash playdiaries. Next week, Shane McCafferty on Burnout 2. Until next week, bye bye.